today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years. Cashandcarrykitchens.ie Brian, thank you very much. Now, lawyers for former solicitor Michael Lynn have said that he has instructed them to immediately file an appeal against his conviction and his sentence. A jury yesterday found Lynn guilty of 10 of 21 counts against him in a trial at Dublin Circuit Criminal Court. The jury was unable to agree on the other 11 counts. Lynn had pleaded guilty, not guilty, to 21 counts of theft between the 23rd of October 2006 and the 20th of April 2007. Well, author and broadcaster Dervil MacDonald first broke the story when she was legal editor with the Irish Independent back in 2007. And she joins me on the line now. Good morning, Dervil. Good morning to you. You make me feel so old. Uh, <laughs> Nearly 17 Listen, don't years worry. Ago. You're, you're not on your own. <laughs> Michael Lynn, uh, the sentence handed down yesterday was five and a half years in prison. And as you said there, it's 17 years after you first broke details of the story and you've followed the story very, very closely since then. Will you take us back to that time when it first came to our attention? Yeah, so I suppose it, it goes way back to October uh, 2007, Claire. And I suppose for me, Michael Lynn was the beginning, I think, in the public's imagination of the, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger. There had been a couple of foreshocks um, in the courts, which uh, the commercial court in particular, which sort of became the court that wrote the first draft of the collapse of the Celtic Tiger. There had been a couple of foreshocks. We were seeing um, some companies getting into trouble. We were seeing uh, cases coming through in a in, in a, a court called the Chancery summons list, which I hadn't, even though I was legal editor, much knowledge of at the time. It is, of course, what we now more commonly known as the High Court repossessions list. So there were little early indicators that that they, that they, the economy and the property crash was coming. But it was only really with the discovery that there had been um, a, a solicitor at that time unnamed brought before the High Court um, over a suspected mortgage fraud. Um, what was incredible was that for me, that was really the beginning of the collapse of the Celtic Tiger. There were many more solicitors who came after but Michael Lynn, I suppose, really became the public face of that. That I suppose that um, that collaboration between the legal worlds and the, and the property worlds, and it really, really was quite dramatic. The concept that a lawyer and lawyers, as it turned out, um, multiples of them would abuse as a, as officers of the court would have abused the system of legal undertakings to essentially draw down multiple loans um, from banks um, having given a promise to, to secure the deeds. So you say that was the moment for the first time when many people in this country realise the Celtic Tiger is over, dead in the water, that time in 2007. <laughs> It, it was the beginning um, of, of a multitude of court cases. As I say, the com- commercial court, which had been set up to fast track commercial law cases, in fact, then just, I suppose, became the, the theatre, the spectacle of that. After Michael Lynn, it was when we started seeing the big property developers um, come asunder, when we saw big insurance claims, everything suddenly came into that court. So obviously it was a number of years before the, the, the Troika uh, mm-hmm. came uh, to visit those shores. But I suppose for me, uh, there was a moment, Claire, the morning after we, we published the story I was coming back from Belfast it was on a train and mobile phones aren't as smart as they are now but I remember um, when the reception kind of changed at the border I had all these messages on my phone from lawyers from property contacts saying you know this solicitor because we hadn't named him at that point is it A is it B or is it C and I'd taken down about 15 names and not one of them was Michael Lynn so for me that was the moment yes. I suppose that they that, 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 that it began and other people will have their own uh, memories of, of 
of, of when they thought it. But it was an extraordinary story because he he, um, he he left Ireland. He was brought before the High Court by the late great High Court President, um, Mr Justice Richard Johnson, who said, where is he? Bring him before me. And nobody, Claire, nobody disobeyed an order by, um, by Ricky Johnson. And he didn't turn up. And from that point, he sort of earned the moniker of the Scarlet Pimpinel of the legal world. He was variously reported in Portugal, um, in the Portuguese Algarve, in uh, Brazil, in Panama. There were lots of mysterious stories and he always denied that he had fled, but he certainly hadn't come home to face the music. And that was something that the judge yesterday, Judge Martin Nolan, in handing down his sentence, whilst acknowledging the, the really, really difficult conditions he must have been living in with him for over four years in a jail in Brazil. He said he st- it was still within his hands. He could have come home had he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Then you write in such a fascinating way about this encounter you had with him in 2009 at Faro Airport in the car park of the airport in Portugal. So talk us through what happened. Why were you there and, and what then ensued? Well, I suppose I, I had something of, of a minor obsession with the Michael Lynn case and the broader what we sort of came to know as the rogue solicitors cases. I was legal editor at the time, so I was very, very interested in it. I went over to Portugal to to meet a contact or hopefully contacts that would know a little bit more about his business dealings. I was, like the Gardaí at the time, who were still searching, uh, looking for um, a, a computer server, a server that was missing and still remains missing that would hold the key to his um, to Michael Lynn's, I suppose, his legal legal and property uh, dealings. So I went over on my own. It was very, very busy. The banks, etc. There was lots of other big stories happening at the time. But I went over on my own to meet a contact um, quietly. And we'd agreed to meet in the um, the car park um, at Faro Airport. And um, and as I went over to meet the contact, whose name I didn't know, so we'd agreed to exchange um, passport details to verify who we were. And next minute, Michael Lynn turned up in a pair of shorts, an orange T-shirt, and this swagger. And there was um, a bit of a confrontation, a verbal confrontation in the airport. I didn't know whether it'd been set up by this contact or not, but um, it was an interesting moment. At least I found out at that point that that Michael Lynn was indeed um, in the Algarve. Mm-hmm. He later went to uh, Brazil with his wife, um, where um, he and his wife had um, had four children. Um, two of them were conceived while he was in custody in very, very harsh conditions. I don't think anyone disputes that. Really, really harsh conditions in a jail in Recife um, in Brazil. But it was incredible, you know, 17 years after the story, uh, no formal extradition treaty between Ireland and um, Brazil. He did come home on an ad hoc um, arrangement. There were not one but two trials. Um, so the first one lasted over 50 days, resulted in a hung jury, which I find interesting as a jury watcher of many years. Uh, the second trial did result um, in charges which resulted in a sentence yesterday. But it was interesting also to note that um, the the jury in that second trial, which did convict him, convicted him in just under half um, of the charges. His complaint then and now was that he felt that the banks were were part of this, that this was just the way that it was at the time. I think he's now calling for um, an inquiry into the conducts of the bank. And to some extent, he is right about the broader conduct of banks at the time. Claire, you have to, you know, your younger listeners won't remember the frenzy of the of yeah. the Celtic Tiger years and and the greed and the fuel for, for money and the banks couldn't get money out quick enough. And this easing off that we had in the 1980s of regulations to make conveyancing easier and simpler, the solicitor's undertakings were utilised, you know, freely by the banks, by others. And of course, it's Achilles heel was that its simplicity and the system of trust um, meant that it was open to um, 
to, to abuse. So explain that to us, because at the time, if a solicitor said that they had seen the deeds of a property that was being sold and signed a document stating that, that that was all taken as read by the lender. Yeah, so what you actually need to do is actually go back into the 1980s and to the introduction of the Boland regulation. So previously it was a, it led to huge delays, um, you know, people saying that sales couldn't go ahead because before Boland regulations, the banks insisted on title deeds being exchanged or lodged before they issued the mortgage check or the bank draft to buy a property. And that led to protests about outrageous conveyancing delays that was killing high sale deals. Then they introduced a new trust-based system, the solicitor's undertakings, which essentially allowed a solicitor to give a written assurance um, that the deed or the title of the property had been verified, would be duly lodged. Essentially, it was a promise to make sure everything uh, that was in order. The banks who were operating with no central register, it is insane that we still don't have any conveyancing system, but they'd no way of knowing if there were previous charges against the property and they released the money. But uh, for Mike Lynn and for others, multiple loans were drawn down on the same property and I suppose that that is what um, allowed Michael Lynn to obtain multiple mortgages on the same properties in a situation where banks weren't aware that other banks were also providing um, finance. I suppose what's interesting for me almost 20 years on, Claire, is the it was really significant in my view, it was really important yesterday that Michael Lynn was brought before the courts in Ireland, that he was um, uh, jailed yesterday by uh, Judge Martin Nolan because, you know, the, the, the successful prosecution of white collar crime in this country is still as rare as hen's teeth. We did bring in a lot of reforms um, after um, the the financial crash. So, for example, we, we, we took away um, complaints against the self-regulation aspect of complaints against legal practitioners We have a legal services regulatory authority. We did introduce more reforms to protect clients' money for solicitors. We did introduce a a rule, an offence, that uh, for companies, particularly directors and managers, that they have to report certain crimes. But when you go and look back at what actually comes before our courts, what's successfully prosecuted, let alone convictions, they are still very, very small and rare compared to the the economic harm, the social and economic harm that is perpetrated by white collar crime. So I think that yesterday's ruling is significant because it's important for public confidence in our criminal justice system that this type of crime is investigated, prosecuted and where possible conviction secured. I suppose it serves as a reminder and I know there are plenty of people in this country who do not need a reminder of the damage that was caused after the collapse of the Celtic Tiger and the fallout afterwards but it does take you right back to that time. It does, and, and it's interesting now when I when I still read headlines about how conveyancing delays are still causing outrageous, you know, delays in, in the purchase of house sales. It's really, really interesting to note that after the collapse of the Celtic Tiger, what we were complaining about was this huge, you know, overhang of, you know, ghost estates of these properties in unsuitable locations that weren't being used. And my goodness, nearly 20 years on, you know, how we're complaining about there isn't enough housing in any part of the country, um, including rural areas. So I think in many respects, we're still dealing with the legacy and the fallout of the global financial crisis, which, uh, lest anyone uh, be reminded, brought the Troika to these shores. Now, the Michael Lynn story mightn't be over yet, because as I said, he has instructed his legal team to immediately appeal this sentence. Uh, And also, we know that investigations, the the Garda National Bureau of Crime economic team, they're they're also continuing to look at Michael Lynn and his dealings since he returned from Brazil. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's interesting is that the that uh, the sentencing, which usually concludes a criminal law matter, um, may not actually be the end of the story of Michael Lynn as we know it. We know that Guardi have frozen over two and a half million in Irish bank accounts linked to a network of companies in a financial investigation connected uh, to the uh, former solicitor. What was interesting yesterday and um, that at the end of Lynn's sentencing hearing, um, a barrister for the Director of Public Prosecutions said there might be an application for a confiscation of assets order under our Criminal Justice Act 94 in relation to property and bank accounts. And uh, Judge Martin Nolan put that matter back to April 16th next. So there obviously are still matters um, outstanding, not least the prospect of an appeal, which is very, very common um, in these cases, but also that Garda activity um, continues. I never thought I'd still be talking about him. <laughs> nearly, uh, nearly seventeen years on, but um, but it, but it's. I, th- I felt that yesterday was an important moment. Well, you know the story so well, um, so we'll continue to ask you to talk about him, Durbel. Thank you so much, Durbel Macdonald, author and broadcaster, and also former legal editor with the Irish Independent. Coming up next on the program, should the EU end the tax exemption on airline fuel? We'll discuss that after this. Text five one five five one today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio One.